Okay, let's uh, let's move to the next slides that we are pending from the past week. Okay, we will stop here. Uh, we were gonna talk about the functions of the liver. Okay, and knowing the function or the many functions of the liver helps you predict. Okay, what will happen to a patient that have liver insufficiency? Okay, notice, and here they have only some of the functions. Okay, participates in detoxification of many things that we eat, toxins or different things that appear as a result of the metabolism of many things. Okay, also produces uh, or participates in the production or metabolic pathways of several hormones that are made from cholesterol. Okay, and detoxification of different fats, conversion or activation of the T4 hormone into T3. Okay, also has a very important immune function. Okay, please uh, remember wear your masks, okay? And this immune function, you're gonna see how important it is, okay, when patients, for example, have a infectious conditions that appear in the colon, in the GI tract. Okay, and also remember the liver is one of the organs that is filtering the blood continuously, okay, together with the spleen, etc. Storage of different nutrients, macro and micronutrients. You have there some vitamins, okay, you have some minerals that are stored in the liver. Okay, participates in the metabolism of Carbohydrates, proteins, lipids. Production of bile, the liver is the largest exocrine gland in the body. Okay, in the past when we didn't know anything about all of these biochemical things, okay, the only thing that we knew about the liver is it is a gland that produces bile, okay, that is stored in the gallbladder. And there are many uh, proteins that are synthesized in the liver, albumin, the blood clotting factors except factor eight. The rest of the blood clotting factors are made there. Okay, so we are gonna be seeing uh, many conditions that appear when there is a damage to the liver. Okay, when you have any kind of patient, uh, one of the things that we do, okay, as part of the general checkup of the patients, is a set of uh, liver function tests Okay, there is a hepatic panel that you can, uh, you can get several enzymes, several of the components, uh, or the different markers that measure the integrity of the liver cells and also the synthetic function of the liver. Okay, also we can look for viruses, we can look for different infections that may affect the liver. Okay, I made here like a summary of the different things that we can find in the liver function tests. It is also in the PowerPoint, so you don't need to take notes of this. But basically, when we look at the liver, we wanna see if there is, is the, if the cells are intact or not, if there is necrosis, in the same way that when we suspect there is ischemia in the heart, myocardial infarctions, we look for cardiac markers, we look for liver markers, okay, several enzymes that should be Okay, inside the liver cells, if we find them in the blood elevated, that indicates or suggests a liver damage. So there are different patterns that we can 
seeing the patients. And these patterns have specific names and they narrow the differential diagnosis. For example, if your, your patient has jaundice, okay, that narrows the differential diagnosis. Okay, for example, we have here the patterns that can be found. Okay, there is one that is called hepatocellular pattern, another that is called cholestatic pattern. Okay, when we see, for example, elevation of the ALT and AST out of proportion to the bilirubin, GGT, alkaline phosphatase, we say, okay, this is a hepatocellular damage pattern. Okay, there are many causes, for example, viral hepatitis or alcohol or fat accumulation, fatty liver, okay, alcoholic or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. These are probably the causes, at least the most common ones. Okay, other patients may have elevated alkaline phosphatase, bilirubin, GGT, out of proportion to the ALT and AST. Okay, in that case, we think more of a problem in the bile ducts. Okay, there, there is pressure as a result of the bile accumulating. It's a problem in the circulation of the bile. There is damage to the cells in the bile ducts. That is called cholestatic pattern. At the same time, we measure the synthetic function. We look for albumin, we look for prothrombin time. All of this tells us if the liver is synthesizing these proteins or not. And we have to be careful with the albumin. Albumin may be low, not only because of a liver problem, also because of nutritional disorders, or maybe due to kidney failure. People have, for example, a nephrotic syndrome. They are losing lots of albumin Okay, the kidneys don't retain the albumin, so the liver can't cope with the amount of protein that is being lost by the kidneys. Okay, so when we put all these things together, we can have an idea okay, of what could be the problem in our patients. Of course, we look at the, the serology for different hepatitis virus, different also autoantibodies. Some patients may, may have anti-nuclear antibodies, anti-mitochondrial antibodies, uh, anti-neutrophil uh, antibodies, uh, the ones that we call P-ANCA. And then we put all that together because there are also some autoimmune hepatitis or some other disorders, autoimmune disorders that may produce the same presentation. There is a video, it's very good, uh, that summarizes many good things in the pathophysiology of the liver disease. Here we have a uh, a good diagram that shows and remembers you the anatomy or the histology of the liver. Okay, there you have these uh, uh, structural units here of the liver. Okay, these hepatic lobules. Uh, remember, they are hexagonal. Okay, in every corner, they have these portal triads composed by a branch of the portal vein, hepatic artery, and biliary ducts. Typically, the blood enters the liver through two different circulations, from the general circulation through the hepatic artery, the blood that is rich in oxygen, and also receives blood from the portal vein that is not so rich in oxygen, but has many nutrients from the GI tract. Okay, these two bloods, arterial and venous, they mix in the hepatic sinusoids, and the blood typically circulates from the periphery towards the central vein. 
Okay, the bile is made by these hepatocytes. It will enter different tiny ductules. All of these du uh, ductules will join to form larger and larger ducts that will okay, be collected okay, in these uh, biliary ducts, and then they will go to the, 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 the different uh, pathways of the biliary tree, okay, to the common bile duct. So if they may enter in the duodenum, if the ampulla of butter, the sphincter of Odi is open, or may enter the cystic duct and the gallbladder if uh, digestion is not occurring at that point. Okay, in the center we have the central vein collecting all the blood that enters to the hepatic globule. And from the central vein, the blood is gonna enter, or is gonna leave the liver through the hepatic vein to the inferior vena cava. Okay, this is a beautiful architecture and sometimes if there is inflammation, chronic inflammation, fibrosis, there is gonna be a distortion of that architecture leading to different uh, problems in the function of the liver that may manifest with problems doing all these things that you see here. Now there is a concept that is important from the pharmacological point of view Okay, and this is about the different zones okay, that exist within these hepatic globules. There you have the representation of one of the portal triads. You can see the blood being mixed here in the sinusoids. Okay, inside the sinusoids, you see these very important cells, the Kupfer cells, which are macrophages, okay, catching any kind of bacteria that may enter there. Okay, you see the blood entering and being in contact with different hepatocytes. Some of them are close to this portal triad. Some of them are far away, more close to the central vein. Okay, you can see here also another cell. It's called the stellate cell. You are gonna see the importance of this. Uh, these cells uh, typically store vitamin A, but also have a very important role when there is chronic inflammation. They are like fibroblasts and they are the ones that start producing collagen, start producing connective tissue and fibrosis, responsible for the damage that we may see in liver cirrhosis. So what is the importance of these different zones that you see here, zone one, zone two, zone three? Well, they perform different metabolic functions. For example, the zone one, the one that is closer to, the, uh, to this uh, portal triad, Okay, it's, a, it's an area that receives a blood that is very rich in oxygen and nutrients, and also toxins, of course, and will perform many chemical reactions that have to do with oxidation and reduction. Okay, all of the oxidation-reduction reactions will occur there. For example, beta-oxidation of the fatty acids, gluconeogenesis, which is creating glucose from amino acids, for example. And when you move towards the end, to the zone three, the one that is closer to the central vein, these cells here don't receive oxygen or very little, so they can't perform any kind of oxidation reduction reactions. They do other types of chemical reactions that don't need oxygen. Okay, for example, conjugation. We are gonna see the importance of that. 
synthesis of bile acids, synthesis of triglycerides, ketogenesis, lipogenesis, glycolysis, okay, different reactions that are anaerobic, okay, don't uh, need oxygen. Now, let's imagine that there are some medications, for example, uh, Tylenol, any medication entering here, the cells of the first area are gonna take this medication, they are gonna, are gonna metabolize them, okay, and are gonna release wastes. Okay, that means that the zone two and three are gonna receive toxins plus the wastes of the cells in the zone one. Okay, the zone two is gonna further metabolize these medications and the toxins, and the zone three is gonna receive toxins plus wastes of the zone one plus the wastes of the zone two. It's the area that is more prone to damage. It's the area that will suffer most of the liver damage around the central vein. And this is an area that doesn't receive oxygen and nutrients. So it's gonna have also difficulties repairing the cells when they are damaged. Okay, in pharmacology, you probably will learn more about the implications of this. Again, what type of reactions occur in each place and what happens to medications once they travel across these different areas. Now, let's talk about some specific points in the metabolic functions of the liver. Okay, one very important is the bilirubin metabolism. Okay, when we have a patient, one of the the values that we receive in these liver function tests is the bilirubin total direct, indirect, and we need to be able to interpret what it means. Okay, and also put this together with the clinical findings of the patients, with the signs, symptoms that the patients, with the findings on the physical exam, okay? What is bilirubin? Bilirubin is simply a pigment that is a product of the breakdown of hemoglobin. Okay, after the red blood cells are broken down Okay, hemoglobin starts, uh, starts the metabolism of hemoglobin, it's broken down. Okay, we take the, uh, we form bilirubin, we take the iron, store the iron. Okay, and the heme group is gonna be metabolized to bilirubin. Okay, at the beginning, this, this first step, okay, this is, a, a bilirubin is insoluble in water. Okay, so if we need to transport the bilirubin, for example, from the spleen to the liver, we need to attach it to albumin, okay? Because it can travel by itself, dissolved in the plasma. So it has to be made water soluble to be excre excreted, for example, in bile, or to be excreted by the kidneys if necessary. Okay, so there are five steps. First of all, degradation, okay? To uh, biliverdin, which is the first compound that then is converted to bilirubin. Okay, this is a bilirubin that we call indirect or unconjugated. It's the one that is being transported in the blood. Okay, this type of bilirubin can't go into the urine. It's bound to albumin. It can't pass through the glomerulus. It's not water soluble. Then we have the process of liver uptake. The cells take that bilirubin. Of course, they don't take the albumin. Okay, the albumin and the bilirubin reach the liver cells, only the bilirubin enters the hepatocyte, the albumin continues circulating. 
Then inside the liver cell, okay, we have an enzyme that is called glucoronyl transferase. Okay, and this enzyme uh, will conjugate the, the bilirubin to a compound that is called bilirubin diglucoronide. Okay, this is a compound that is water soluble and is the one that we call direct bilirubin. Okay, now this direct bilirubin is the one that is water soluble. This can be eliminated in the bile. Okay, and is the one that can appear, for example, in the urine. Okay, that is a process of uh, biliary excretion, bile canaliculi, ductules, etc., hepatic duct, cystic duct, etc., until it reaches the duodenum to participate in the absorption of the fats. Now, this bilirubin participates in the process of fat absorption, continuous traveling, small intestine, large intestine. Now the intestinal bacteria are the ones that are gonna take care of metabolizing it. And they are gonna convert it to urobilinogen, okay, that may be further metabolized to stercobilin. What is the name sterco? Has to do with feces, right? Okay, this is what gives the color to the stools. Okay, if the stools don't contain ster stercobilin, they are gonna appear gray or clay colored. Okay, this urobilinogen converted to stercobilin, what gives the color to the stools. Okay, if there is any biliary obstruction, for example, stools will lose the color, become clay colored. Now some or part of this urobilinogen is gonna be reabsorbed from the intestines and will be re-excreted in the bile. Okay, this is uh, something called enterohepatic circulation. That is not only, not only works for bilirubin, also for medications or for poisons that we may take. Okay, these compounds taken in the mesenteric veins will enter the liver and the liver is gonna process them again. And a little bit of it may be excreted in the urine, also giving color to the urine. So important, this point here, conjugated bilirubin is excreted in the urine, is the one that is water soluble. The unconjugated is not, okay? Only the conjugated or direct hyperbilirubinemia either because of hepatocellular damage or cholestatic causes may produce bilirubinuria. Now, besides this, uh, remember that bilirubin may increase for different reasons, okay? One of them is hemolysis. If someone has elevated hemolysis, they are gonna have a predominant, indirect or unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, uh, okay, when there is a problem in the liver itself, the liver doesn't uh, work properly, they may tend to have more, uh, an increase in the direct part or conjugated bilirubin. Now, another important uh, aspect of the liver is the metabolism of lipids. You know the importance that this has for cardiovascular disease. Okay, there are different uh, types of lipids. Okay, there, is a, there are different pathways in the metabolism for exogenous and endogenous lipids. 
Okay, for example, every time we eat uh, and we eat a diet that contains lipids, most of the lipids are gonna be triglycerides. Of course, there is some cholesterol, some other lipids. Okay, but the triglycerides, most abundant, are gonna be digested in the stomach, duodenum, okay, by the lipases. They are gonna be converted into monoglycerides and free fatty acids by different enzymes, gastric lipase, pancreatic lipase, and also as a result of the emulsification produced by the peristaltism with the help of the biliary salts. Okay, for example, cholesterol, okay, is gonna be using the same mechanisms, it's gonna be de-esterified into free cholesterol molecules. And all of these lipids, monoglycerides, free fatty acids, cholesterol, okay, are gonna be shuttled in the micelles of bile acids, okay, little particles of fat surrounded by these biliary uh, acids are gonna be shuttled into the intestine for absorption. Then, for example, the monoglycerides and the free fatty acids are gonna be reassembled to form triglycerides and will be packed together with cholesterol into particles that we call chylomicrons. Okay, the chylomicrons are gonna start traveling in the lymphatic vessels, the lacteals of the small intestine, following the thoracic duct, okay, to enter the left subclavian vein and then the circulation. Notice that these particles of fat don't go to the liver first as the rest of the nutrients that we eat. Okay, for example, amino acids or, or, or glucose. Okay, so this is gonna travel to the circulation directly. Okay, and gonna it's gonna reach the adipose and muscle tissue. Okay, the, there is a, a protein, okay, on these chylomicrons that is called APOC2 that will activate an enzyme that is on the endothelial cells that is called lipoprotein lipase that will participate in the uptake of these triglycerides, cholesterol, by, the, uh, by these uh, endothelial cells. And of course, from there, it will move to be stored in the adipose tissue or to be used by the muscle, okay? Then we have, uh, after the tissues have taken the lipids that they need, okay? There are some particles that are called chylomicron remnants, okay? That will go to the liver, okay? And the liver is supposed to clear the excess, okay? That there is another protein that mediates that process. So in a nutshell, what is important here is that the chylomicrons, okay, when we find them in the blood, they represent exogenous or dietary lipids. <coughs> when you order triglycerides, what they are measuring is the amount of, uh, of these uh, chylomicrons. Because are the larger particles, the ones that contain most of the triglycerides from the diet. Now, then we have uh, other particles, okay? And these contain what we call the endogenous lipids, so lipids that are produced or exported by the liver. Okay, we have the very low density lipoproteins, 
Okay, they are made in the liver to transport triglycerides and cholesterol to the peripheral tissues. Okay, then these particles, they are big, very, very low density, but they are big in size. They contain lots of triglycerides and cholesterol. They are distributing all of these lipids in the tissues. Okay, when they, they, these lipids are distributed, they are start decreasing in size. They become what we call intermediate density lipoproteins. They are the product of the lipoprotein lipase processing of these molecules. Okay, this can be cleared by the liver or uh, metabolized into low-density lipoproteins. Okay, the low-density lipoproteins, LDL cholesterol, okay, are the product of this metabolism of VLDL first, IDL then, then LDL. They are, it's a particle that is reducing in size as we extract the lipids from them. And these are the most cholesterol-rich. The first two contain lots of triglycerides and cholesterol. Now all the triglycerides have been extracted and we have the LDL that is the one that contains a lot of cholesterol. And this LDL, there are different sizes, okay? If they are very, very, very tiny, okay, they may enter very easily under the endothelial cells if they are damaged, okay? They may undergo oxidation and in that, that case, we are gonna call them oxidized LDL. And these are the ones that have a very important role in the pathogenesis of atherosclerosis. Because then we are gonna have the macrophages engulfing them and forming the foam cells that start the formation of the ateroma plaque. And finally, we have the HDL, high density lipoproteins. Okay, these are, the, the metabolism of the HDL is very, very complex. Okay, they're initially cholesterol-free. Okay, they are made by the enterocytes and the liver. And they simply obtain cholesterol, they pick up cholesterol from the peripheral tissues and also from the LDL, IDL, VLDL. Okay, making what we call the reverse transport of cholesterol to the liver. Okay, not only that, uh, this HDL also have anti-inflammatory and, and antioxidant properties. So they protect the endothelial cells in several ways. Okay, removing the excess cholesterol and also creating anti-inflammatory and antioxidant conditions. Okay, you have here these diagrams that show the different aspects of the absorption of the lipids. Okay, we have here the micelles. Okay, these tiny particles that contain lipids surrounded by biliary salts after the breakdown of fat. Notice how they are absorbed. They are processed in the Golgi. Okay, and then we have the chylomicrons being absorbed in the lacteals. Okay, for this breakdown of fat, we have the action of the lipase and the colipase, two enzymes. Okay, the, these two enzymes are necessary. The colipase is the one that uh, opens okay, the, the, the droplets of fat, so the lipase may enter and do its action. Notice how the triglycerides are broken down into, mono, uh, into, free, into free fatty acids 
and these monoglycerides, they are incorporated in, the, in these micelles. Okay, these uh, black T's here are representing the bile salts. Okay, and then the free fatty acids and the monoglycerides are reassembled inside the enterocytes. It's a very complex and very interesting process. There are many things that have to be working properly for this to occur. And there is a representation of the different particles. Notice the size and the density, the darker the particles are, okay, the, the higher the density. Okay, the endogenous, notice the dietary fat enters in chylomicrons. Okay, the liver has receptors for the chylomicron remnants that represents the uptake of fat here. Okay, the endogenous fat, the liver exports the fat in VLDLs that become IDL, then LDL. Okay, they are gonna be uh, taken back okay, because there are LDL receptors in the liver. Okay, may take back the IDLs or the LDLs. Okay, and here we have the representation of, representation of the pathway of HDLs produced by the liver, picking up cholesterol and doing the reverse transport of the excess fat in the tissues. So when there is any kind of liver dysfunction, as we were saying at the beginning, okay, we may see uh, patients having problems with all the functions that we mentioned at the beginning, problem with the, problems with the generation of energy, problems with the metabolism. Okay, we may have uh, problems with the secretion production of bile that will translate into fat malabsorption and also problems with the absorption of the fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. Okay, they may have also jaundice. Okay, problems with the detoxification of alcohol, drugs, dyslipidemias, okay, elevated LDL to HDL ratio. And also synthesis, uh, reduction of the synthesis of plasma proteins and prothrombin time in the case of the coagulation factors, and we may lose also the protective functions of the liver, uh, immunologically speaking, bacteria, but also problems clearing excess hormones, detoxifying ammonia. One of the main functions of the liver is taking ammonia and converting it to urea. Ammonia is a very toxic product. The liver takes the ammonia to ammonia together and makes urea that can be easily eliminated by the, by, the, by the kidneys. And also we may see something that is called hepatorenal syndrome. Okay, it's a patient that presents with, the, with something that looks like acute kidney injury, but actually there is no problem in the kidneys. It's simply an alteration in the function of the liver that will alter the sodium and water balance will activate the renin angiotensin aldosterone system leading to the so-called hepatorenal syndrome. Okay, so in that case, fixing the liver problem will fix what looks like 
a kidney issue. Now, besides the hepatocellular damage, besides the cholestasis and the problems that may appear as a result of the uh, reduced synthesis of proteins, some of the manifestations that the patients may have can be due to portal hypertension. Okay, when there is an, a structural problem in the liver, fibrosis, cirrhosis, damaged architecture, okay, the increasing pressure in the portal circulation will lead to other set of problems okay, that we are gonna be seeing when we study the patient with cirrhosis more in detail. There you have the values, uh, of course, for pathophysiology, you don't need to memorize any of these values, simply for you to have something like what we were writing here. Okay, in the liver function tests, we have several enzymes, the amino transferases, ALT, AST. Okay, notice that there is an L in ALT, so that is more specific for the liver itself than the rest. Because these enzymes, for example, alkaline phosphatase may be elevated when a woman is pregnant, okay, when there are uh, bone problems, the placenta produces alkaline phosphatase. So it's not the, these other enzymes are not too specific. The ALT is the one that is uh, more specific for the liver. But increases in the ALT, AST measure hepatocellular integrity. Okay, alkaline phosphatase, bilirubin, the integrity of the bile ducts together with the, with the GGT. Okay, PT, albumin, synthetic function. And we may have these patterns. This is what I was writing there, so you don't have to, to write from the, from the board. Okay. You have there the interpretation of the hepatocellular pattern when it's ALT predominant, which we think more on viral hepatitis, maybe acute or chronic. Okay, other types of hepatitis, steatohepatitis, ischemic, autoimmune, and other um, uh, diseases. Of course, we have to put this together with other markers like the finding of uh, autoimmune uh, markers, okay, uh, different types of antibodies that may be present. When, the, when we have an AST predominant liver function test, we have to think more about alcohol-related steatohepatitis, cirrhosis, non-hepatic causes, okay, myopathies, hemolysis, thyroid disease, exercise. And then we have the cholestatic pattern. We have a elevated ALP, GGT, and bilirubin out of proportion to the ALTAST. In that case, we have to think about hepatobiliary and non-hepatic causes. Okay, for example, bile duct obstruction, some autoimmune conditions. We are going to see them later, like primary biliary cirrhosis, primary sclerosing cholangitis, medications, uh, on some infiltrating diseases of the liver, sarcoidosis, amyloidosis, etc. And rule out, of course, when there is a an elevation of the alkaline phosphatase, that this may be from the bone, pregnancy, chronic renal failure, malignancies, congestive heart failure, different things 
that we have to rule out, okay, when the alkaline phosphatase is the one that predominates. So there you have a table, okay, that will help you okay, in your differential diagnosis. Okay, when you have this, uh, you have the type of jaundice, for example, hemolytic, any hemolytic anemia. Okay, notice that is the unconjugated or indirect bilirubin, the one that increases. Hemoglobin, hemat hematocrit will be low, and the rest is normal. Okay, then you have the hepatocellular damage, obstructive or cholestatic damage. So you can put together different things. And I repeat, this is more for medicine than for pathophysiology, but it's good to have it. So we're going to start uh, looking at hepatitis itself. Okay, when we mention the word hepatitis, everybody thinks on hepatitis A, B, C. Okay, however, hepatitis can occur for many different reasons. Okay, alcohol intoxication, medications, autoimmune, okay, and even simply because of a person having a metabolic syndrome, okay, having a, a fatty liver, okay, different things may produce hepatitis. Um, so it's an acute process, okay, acute hepatitis that leads to necrosis of hepatocytes, okay, and we will see an elevation, very important sometimes elevations of the ALT, AST. Okay, there you have several viruses that produce hepatitis. Okay, the AB. Notice hepatitis C rarely produces an acute disease. We have the, the hepatitis virus, the B1, that itself doesn't produce any problem. It requires a co-infection with hepatitis B. Okay, so the best way of avoiding hepatitis B hepatitis is having a vaccine against hepatitis B so we don't get the co-infection at any point. And the hepatitis E, that is very similar to the A, okay, but for some reason, it is only life-threatening in pregnant women. Okay, we are not sure why that is. We don't do experiments with pregnant women, but we know that that's the case for this. Then we have other viruses, Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus, varicella zoster, herpes simplex, yellow fever, measles, rubella. Well, we are gonna focus more on the hepatitis viruses to try to understand the differences between them. Okay, for example, hepatitis A is uh, an RNA virus, a difference with the hepatitis B, that is a DNA virus. Okay, typically hepatitis A is transmitted by the fecal oral route. Okay, people who work in daycares or can be transmitted by sexual contact. Okay, children, for example. Uh, are more at risk of this. In the military, people eating raw, undercooked, shellfish, vegetables, contaminated with the virus. Okay, we are gonna see that the pathogenesis or the infection of this, uh, with these viruses is very similar, okay? It, enters in the hepatocytes, replicates there. Okay, the virus itself doesn't produce much damage. 
the virus, if there is no activation of the immune system, nothing is gonna happen. The damage in the liver, the necrosis, is produced by cytotoxic T cells and natural killer cells that are attacking the cells that are infected. Okay, so it's, a, it's like an overreaction of our immune system that can be so exaggerated that can produce a fulminant hepatitis. That is not very common. I think it's 0 0.1 uh, or 0.01% of the cases that may have a fulminant hepatitis. Okay, hepatitis A is self-limited. It doesn't progress to chronic disease, okay? There is no one that has a chronic hepatitis A. So people either die of a fulminant hepatitis or have the disease for several months and they get better. Okay, there are some similarities and some differences in the presentation. We are gonna see that the main difference is the incubation period and also if they may progress to chronic or not. Okay, typically patients have nausea, vomiting, anorexia, abdominal pain, dark urine, and pale stools. That means the stools are not receiving the stercobiline because of the inflammatory process and the excess bilirubin is eliminated in the urine. Okay, they may have hepatomegaly, jaundice, icterus. And simply doing a blood test, okay, we can detect this elevated IgM in the acute process, antibodies against hepatitis A. Okay, aminotransferases will be elevated in the thousands. Okay, and patients may have IgG antibodies against hepatitis A, that means the patients are immune. So it's a past infection. Now, hepatitis B is the one that sometimes is more problematic for students because of the problem in interpretation of the serology of this uh, hepatitis B. Okay, this is transmitted not by fecal oral, is a more parenteral way of transmission, peri perinatal, blood transfusion, sexual contact, transplants. Okay, so the virus again attacks the hepatocytes. In this case, there are something different happens. The viral genome enters the nucleus. There is a reverse transcription, maybe integrated in the, in the DNA of our cells. Okay, we have again the natural killer cells cytotoxic T cells attacking these uh, hepatocytes. Some people may have this uh, also fulminant hepatitis, not very common, okay? And what happens with the patients? Remember hepatitis A, all of the patients would uh, recover, except the ones who died of the fulminant. But in the case of hepatitis B, 90% of the patients will completely recover but 10% will develop a chronic hepatitis. Okay, in the case of neonates, most of them progress to a chronic process. Okay, if they have any co-infection with hepatitis D or hepatitis C, the prognosis is gonna be worse than having only hepatitis B. The presentation is similar, yes? Hepatitis A. Oh, okay. Well, the, the, the B, no, the B neither, 90% recovery. Oh, really? And which one is the one that they have a cure for now? Hepatitis C. Oh. Hepatitis C. 
Okay. The presentation is very similar. The only thing that varies is the incubation period. One thing that was very common in the presentation in the past was the patients uh, who used to smoke would stop smoking because tobacco would give them nausea. They would reject tobacco. Okay, nowadays, uh, that's not very helpful. In the past, most people used to smoke. Now, almost anybody smokes, so that's not very uh, useful in the clinical presentation, but just in case. And if the patient has a chronic hepatitis, a chronic liver problem, okay, we may see what we call the stigmata of chronic liver disease. We're gonna see them more in detail when we enter into the cirrhosis part. But spider and geomata, ascites, asterixis, and other stigmata of chronic liver disease. Now, lab tests. Okay, how do we interpret the serologic tests? Let's try to represent here the hepatitis virus. There is an envelope, and there is a code. This is the envelope. Okay, the envelope, of course, is in the surface. There are proteins there. This is called the surface antigen. Okay, so outside, and there are proteins in the core. That is where the DNA is. So these are the core antigens, okay? So, these proteins here in the core, if the virus is inactive, say the virus is living in our body, but it's not replicating, it's just waiting there for the good moment to start replicating, okay? When the virus is actively replicating, which means active infe infection and high possibilities of uh, spreading the infection, highly contagious, the virus is gonna secrete some of these core proteins. And this is something that we call the E antigen. Okay, so the E antigen means active infection, highly contagious, okay? The core antigen simply means the virus is there, okay? Now, the surface antigen. This is important because this is the antigen that we use to make vaccines, okay? We don't use the core to make vaccines, only the surface. So if you detect a person that has antibodies, okay, against the surface antigen, that may be the person got the vaccine. But if they have antibodies against the core, that's not because of the vaccine. Okay, they are immune, but because they had the infection. Okay, now, when you find the antigen, oh, that is infection. When you find the core antigen, that is infection. When you find the E antigen, that is active infection, highly transmissible disease. Okay, just knowing the anatomy of the virus helps a lot. And what is in the vaccine and what is not. 
So for example, you have there some examples. Okay, presence of the hepatitis B surface antigen. There is a there is an infection. Okay? Now, this is antibodies. Antibodies against the hepatitis B surface antigen. That is immunity. We have antibodies. That is immunity. Can be infection, prior infection, or vaccination. Hepatitis B core antigen. We know that the virus is there. Okay, now maybe active or not. Okay, antibodies against the core. Okay, these are important during the window period. And maybe the only positive test during the window period. If they are IgM, this is acute infection. If they are IgG, that is either previous exposure or chronic infection. Now, how do we know the, the, the difference between all these? Antigen E, the excreted one. Cells secrete, excreted. Active replication, high transmissibility. Notice that this is the antigen. If they simply have antibodies against the E, that is an antibody that we make against that protein. That means or suggests low transmissibility. But if they have the antigen E, elevated in blood, high transmissibility. Okay, it's, this is complicated, and this is something that uh, has to be worked. Okay. Um, there is more, there is a table that you have some examples, okay, to make sure you understand this. Okay, but let's have a break. Okay. Have a break until two oh five. No, no. Yeah, two oh five. many people out there who may have hepatitis C and they don't know. Okay, it's also transmitted uh, in the, through the parental route, sexual contact, blood, etc. Okay, so this is a virus, is RNA, has another different uh, life cycle. The virus enters the nucleus, incorporates the genome into our DNA, but also produces mutations in our DNA so is the one that has more likelihood of producing liver cancer. Okay, it's difficult to understand the pathogenesis is not totally understood, but most cases now, most cases progress to chronic hepatitis, liver cirrhosis, cancer, or maybe die. the patient's presentation or the diagnosis may occur in the setting of a liver failure. We realize that the patient has hepatitis C. Okay, so the patients typically are asymptomatic or may have the classic findings of hepatitis, fatigue, myalgia, abdominal pain, dark urine, pale stools, or if they have cirrhosis, they may have this stigmata of chronic liver disease. 
okay, and depending on the what stage the patient is. So here we have a table that compares okay, the different hepatitis. Notice that one important thing is the incubation period okay, and how abrupt or insidious the onset is. Notice hepatitis A and E, they have an abrupt onset. Okay, the incubation period, the mean in days is uh, 30 days. There is a range that is wide. Some patients have an incubation period of two weeks, some others six weeks. Compared with the hepatitis B, it's more insidious. Incubation period is longer, maybe three months. Okay, and then you have other uh, uh, factors in the clinical presentation. For example, arthralgia and rash are more common in hepatitis B than in other hepatitis. Remember, the E, we are not gonna focus too much on that one, okay, because this is only important for pregnant women. Okay, the, the severity or the mortality rate is very low in the general population. However, for pregnant women, it's a lot higher, up to 20% may die. Okay, and the, the possibility of chronic infection is only in immunocompromised. So let's focus only on the hepatitis A, B, and C for our purposes. Okay, so rash, arthralgia, hepatitis B. Notice that fever is not present in, in these three. It's more common in the D and in the E. What about nausea and vomiting? Everyone will have it. What about jaundice? It's more common in hepatitis D and E. However, notice that uh, hepatitis A will have jaundice, but not too much in children. And it's less common in hepatitis uh, B. Than in, than in A. Severity, mild, moderate. The hepatitis uh, C is mild. However, if there are complications, of course, the, the, the manifestations of the cirrhosis, liver cancer, but we are talking about just a patient that simply is infected with the hepatitis C, doesn't have an acute presentation. Okay, mortality rate depending on the complications. Okay, slow for all of them. However, if they progress to cirrhosis, of course, this increases. Chronic hepatitis. Okay, almost all of them except hepatitis A. Okay, for the E, only immunocompromised. Associated with malignancy, notice the B, the C, and the D. Not too much in the E, and the A is not associated at all. There are vaccines against hepatitis A and B. We don't have against hepatitis C. We don't have against hepatitis D, so we have to vaccinate the patients against the B so they don't suffer from hepatitis D. Now, this here is a gonna be very useful, okay, to differentiate and to help you interpret the serologic tests. Okay, in the case of the hepatitis A, it's very easy. Notice the incubation period, two to four weeks. Okay, at the end of the incubation period, we have an increase in the liver enzymes. 
this is the pre-icteric phase. Okay, then the liver enzymes are elevated during the icteric phase. Notice that we also have an increase in the antibodies against hepatitis A, a GM. Okay, at the end of the icteric phase, we start having an increase in the IgG against hepatitis A, okay, and a drop in the IgM levels, and the AST goes down. Of course, the bilirubin is also elevated here. This is what explains the jaundice. In the case of the B, it's a bit more complex, okay? We have an incubation period from two to four months. Okay, we have also a pre-icteric phase, icteric and convalescence. And there you have a representation of what they call the window period. Okay, notice that is between the icteric phase and the convalescence and recovery. It's a period in which the surface antigen okay, is negative, and also the antibodies against the surface antigen are negative. Notice that they were elevated in the preicteric phase together with the liver enzymes. Notice that there is an also an, an elevation of the of this uh, E antigen. The virus is actively replicating, producing lots of this protein. Okay, in the icteric phase, we have elevated liver enzymes, bilirubin that is not represented. And we have a drop in the surface antigen and in the E antigen. So if you test the patient at this point, it's gonna be negative for the surface antigen. That's the moment when the core antigen antibodies become more useful because they are gonna be elevated during the entire icteric, okay, and the beginning of the convalescence phase. Okay, that is the most useful during this window period. In the convalescence and recovery, we have an increase in antibodies against the surface and against the E, etc. So, have antibodies against everything. Notice that the surface antigen is not going to appear again. This E antigen is not supposed to appear again. Presence of these antigens would mean chronic infection. Okay? And Hepatitis C is also simple. You have RNA of the virus at the beginning, elevation of the liver enzymes, and at the end, you're supposed to have antibodies. Okay? Against the virus. That, the, the one that is more complex is the B. Requires more practice and going over several times, maybe answering some questions that you may find. And I hope this table also helps you, okay? There you have the interpretation. For example, IgM, antihepatitis B, core, surface, and antigen E, acute infection, high infectivity. Remember this antigen E is high infectivity. We know it's acute because of the IgM now, if there is IgG and also anti-E, uh, antigen E, that is chronic and high infectivity, okay? 
and you can practice different situations okay immunization what is the immunization Okay, what about this last situation? Antibodies against the surface can be immunization or remote infection that they only have that one or false positive. Yeah, different situations that you can use and create multiple choice questions to test each other. So another uh, cause of hepatitis is or are toxins okay alcohol for example okay alcohol or chronic alcohol use abuse may lead to alcoholic hepatitis alcoholic fatty liver disease may lead to cirrhosis and cancer okay alcohol may directly damage cell membranes and the metabolism of alcohol produces acetaldehyde Okay, this uh, creates a situation, a metabolic situation in the liver, reduces the en energy availability for the liver to do different other things. Okay, so the liver has to handle lipids, and if it doesn't have energy because alcohol or acetaldehyde is creating this situation, of course, the fat will accumulate inside the liver. The liver doesn't process them. Okay, also creates oxidative stress, and decrease availability of vitamins, for example, thiamine, folate, B12. Okay, all of this is going to be added to the nutritional deficiencies of the patient. So there you have several mechanisms, how they work. Okay, what happens when there is an injury because of ethanol? Okay, the alcohol disorganizes the lipids in the cell membranes. So they get alterations in their composition. For example, they become more permeable, leaky. Okay, there is abnormality in the mitochondria. So the mitochondria can produce ATP, increases the peroxidation of the lipids, leading to formation of free radicals. And the cells start displaying abnormal antigens. So they may be attacked by the immune system, thinking that this cell is, doesn't belong to this body. Okay, the liver can't deal with the toxins, okay, creating several uh, or inhibits the enzymes that will metabolize different compounds. So it can protect, uh, there is a reduction against all of the uh, mechanisms to remove free radicals and all of these reactive metabolites. So the liver becomes more susceptible to damage by a reactive oxygen species and oxygen products. Okay, and there you have more details about the effects of uh, acetaldehyde. Inhibits the export of proteins, modifies proteins synthesis, alters the uh, metabolism of different cofactors okay, for the enzymes. Okay, B6, folate, choline, zinc, vitamin E, so induces malnutrition for different causes. And there are some complications, uh, for example, malnutrition, deficiency of the vitamins that we mentioned before, B12, B1, folate. 
And there is a syndrome, okay, that is called Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, okay, that actually are a spectrum of the same condition. Okay, we have to differentiate Wernicke's encephalopathy, which is an acute process that is uh, potentially reversible. There is brain injury, that is a damage to the mammillary bodies. And the patient will have disorientation in difference inattentiveness, ophthalmopegia, gait ataxia. And when we have a patient with this type of acute presentation as a result of alcohol intoxication, okay, it's very important to remember that the main feature in the pathophysiology of this is a deficiency of thiamine. Okay? And that if we don't replace the thiamine, the patient may progress to something that is irreversible, that is Korsakoff syndrome. For example, if we give simply glucose to the patient and fluids and we don't replace the thiamine, they may progress to the Korsakoff syndrome. Chronic irreversible damage of not only the mammillary bodies, also thalamus and corpus callosum. And they are gonna develop dementia, irreversible. Anterograde, retrograde dementia, they don't remember anything in the past or they don't form new memories. Also may have confabulation. Confabulation is a very interesting uh, clinical uh, finding in some patients with dementia. Is uh, the classic patient that is the first time you see them, first time you meet this person, and they tell you, oh, I remember you from Baptist Hospital. Right? And they, they look like they're lying, but they're not lying. All of this is in their mind. Their brain makes up everything. It tries to make sense for all of the details. But sometimes the confabulation may implicate persons. Or someone took uh, $1 million that I had here. Right? All that is not their lying. It's simply confabulation. Another complication is hepatic encephalopathy, okay? The liver can't process ammonia, so ammonia accumulates and will damage the brain. They may have these uh, 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 varicosities in the esophagus, okay? Esophageal varices may produce cancer and ascites. Okay, ascites may result in spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Every time there is an inflammatory process in the body, or if we have an increase in the portal pressure, okay, that also produces increasing the pressure in the mesenteric veins, the gut walls become leaky. All these bacteria may pass through or from the large intestine into the blood vessels, into the lymphatics, or into the peritoneal cavity. Spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. So the patients typically will be asymptomatic. They simply have the problem in the liver, okay, unless they have an acute alcohol intoxication. Okay, and depending on the severity, okay, they are gonna have uh, different manifestations. Okay, maybe dose of liver damage, cirrhosis, cancer. Now, when we study the liver dysfunction, we have to Make sure we understand the cause for the different manifestations. Okay, what symptoms depend on the accumulation of ammonia in the brain? What symptoms are due to the increased portal pressure? 
what symptoms are due to the decreased production of albumin or clotting factors, what is due to the decreased uh, function of the liver in clearing, for example, hormones. Okay, when someone has liver failure, the liver is the one that has to eliminate the excess estrogen. If the liver doesn't, do that, it doesn't uh, clear estrogen, they are gonna have, for example, palmar erythema. Okay, excess estrogen will produce vasodilation. They are gonna have the palmar erythema. Will uh, produce an increase in the breasts, gynecomastia in men, testicular atrophy. Okay, they may have also spider angiomas. Okay, these are uh, dilated blood vessels looking like spiders. Okay, jaundice as a result of the increased bilirubin. Caput medusae depends more on the vasodilation, but also the increased uh, portal pressure. And they may have the, the other complications as a result of bleeding, hematemesis, melena, ascites, okay, the ones that we mentioned in the last lecture. Notice the enzymes, okay, elevated AST to ALT. The ratio tends to be two times the AST, okay, compared to ALT. Remember in viral hepatitis, the ALT is the one that predominates okay, above uh, the AST, and also GGT. Every time you see elevated GGT plus AST, that, uh, those predominate, that is likely to be as a result of alcohol. Okay, so that's one of the ways that we know when patients are not very honest about they've been drinking. We're not gonna tell the patient, but we know that. What is the reason for this? Well, we may see the manifestations of the nutritional deficiencies like macrocytic anemia. Hepatic encephalopathy. We already mentioned the difficulty uh, for the liver in clearing ammonia, okay? In converting ammonia to urea to be eliminated uh, by the kidney. The patients with hepatic encephalopathy okay, will present with alterations in the mental status, asterixis, okay, and this may be precipitated by dehydration, infection, any, any situation that produces stress on the body. Okay. It's important to understand that when the liver is cirrhotic, so the blood is not circulating properly through the liver, we have a situation in which there are portosystemic shunts. That means the body deviates the blood that tries to go through the portal vein, okay, through other veins, okay, dilating other veins like the esophageal veins or gastric veins to reach the systemic circulation. So all the toxins that normally should go to the liver will enter the systemic circulation without passing through the liver. Okay, this is what we call a portosystemic shunt. Okay, ammonia is very neurotoxic. Okay, when ammonia reaches, the brain is gonna be converted to glutamine, okay, which is an osmolite that will promote brain edema. Increase glutamate in the brain, attracts water, leading to this uh, brain edema. And of course, brain edema will alter many brain functions. 
that you have other triggers, not only dehydration infection, bleeding, okay, fluid electrolytes, abnormalities, sedatives, cancer, a treatment uh, for, for ascites, that is transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt. This is a shunt that we make to relieve the portal pressure, but it's increasing the portosystemic shunt, so may precipitate hepatic encephalopathy. There you have a vignette, okay, of a patient, so you have this more clear. Mood changes, slow to respond, unsteadiness, alteration in mental status, may have all of these uh, uh, stigmata of chronic liver disease. And the treatment uh, is lactulose, rifaximin. These are, uh, for example, rifaximin is an antibiotic. We have to uh, destroy the intestinal flora because they are more likely to produce even more ammonia, so to incorporate this ammonia into the, into the blood. 45-year-old male, alcoholic cirrhosis, is found on the street with altered mental status. It's brought by the police into the ER multiple similar visits in the past for the same reason. Now this time is very lethargic, jaundiced, has asterixis, ascites, other signs of liver disease, telangiectasia, palmar erythema, negative serum alcohol levels, but elevated ammonia and liver enzymes. Do ultrasound, concerning for malignancy. Okay, that's the presentation of a patient with hepatic encephalopathy. But alcohol is only one of the causes. Okay, nowadays we have many, many, many cases, every time more of patients with what we call NASH, or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is more or less the same, and has exactly the same risks of developing cirrhosis and cancer than a alcoholic hepatitis, okay? NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, is a complication of untreated non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, okay? And this is uh, the classic person that doesn't drink alcohol, or at least not too much, because on weekends, just socially, but has a diet that is very, very rich in sugars, especially uh, high fructose corn syrup, okay? Elevated fructose in the diet. The liver doesn't know what to do with fructose, so it converts the fructose into triglycerides. And that's exactly as if we are drinking lots of alcohol, okay? So what is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Simply fatty change in the liver, okay? You do an ultrasound or you do any kind of test and you see oh there is increase of fat in the liver okay doesn't produce any symptoms there are some structural changes in the liver but it's asymptomatic but may lead to chronic hepatitis okay people with obesity metabolic syndrome hyperinsulinemia hypertriglyceridemia okay all of these are risk factors Okay, the liver is, has a decreased rate, metabolizing and excreting fat. This accumulation of fat will impair the normal functions of the liver, so the liver ends up 
having inflammation, starts being acute, then progresses to chronic with the uh, repair processes and creation of uh, connective tissue, fibrosis, and ultimately liver cirrhosis. Notice this detail here, okay? AST and ALT are elevated by one to one. If you remember in alcoholic, steatohepatitis was AST, ALT, two to one. But this is something that helps, okay, to differentiate between alcoholic versus non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Okay, other function tests in the liver may be normal. Sometimes alkaline phosphatase is elevated, but that is not something that is specific. Okay, we may have complications of cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma. There you can see how the liver looks like in a biopsy. Okay, in non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, macrovesicular steatosis, huge droplets of fat on histology. There is another, uh, these are called Mallory bodies, intracytoplasmatic eosinophilic inclusions. Can be seen in NASH or in alcoholic steatohepatitis. And this is the fibrosis of the liver, okay? Replacement of normal liver tissue by these fibers of connective tissue. Okay, alcohol abuse or a progression of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So at the end, the liver ends up having the same consequences. And hepatitis may be also autoimmune. Okay, we are gonna see some conditions that are autoimmune and may affect the liver. Okay, autoimmune hepatitis, uh, as many other autoimmune conditions, is more common in females. Okay, this specifically is more common in young females. Ratio, um, a female to male is four to one. Okay, a, there is a chronic inflammation, hepatocellular inflammation of the liver necrosis, and a tendency to produce cirrhosis. Okay, it's a patient, imagine a young woman that has elevated liver function tests without any cause. Okay, hepatitis virus negative, no history of alcohol or any drug intake or anything that may damage the liver. What they have is positive anti-nuclear antibodies. Okay, the more specific for autoimmune hepatitis, this type is anti-smooth muscle antibody and may also have anti-microsomal antibodies. Okay, but we place this patient in autoimmune hepatitis when there are anti-smooth muscle antibodies. Okay. Now, what about cirrhosis? Okay, we have mentioned cirrhosis in after almost every condition that we have seen here, except hepatitis A. Okay, and this is simply the result of a chronic inflammation with damage regeneration, damage regeneration, different cycles of acute and chronic inflammation with uh, repair of the tissues, leading to fibrosis, 
formation of nodules and dysfunction of the liver. Okay, and a complication can be the portal hypertension plus all of the other uh, manifestations of liver dysfunction. Okay, the most common factor is alcoholic liver disease, but remember we have mentioned several others, non-alcoholic, chronic viral hepatitis, autoimmune, okay, liver cancer, and some other disorders that we are gonna study at the end uh, of this presentation or on Thursday. Not sure if we are gonna have time today for that. Primary biliary cirrhosis, okay, primary sclerosing cholangitis, Wilson disease as a result of accumulation of copper, hemochromatosis, accumulation of iron, alpha-1 antitrypsin that we uh, have studied in pulmonology. Now, liver cirrhosis, uh, as we mentioned, results from the chronic inflammation, okay, the abnormal architecture of the liver that doesn't let the blood circulate properly from these portal triads to the central vein by in all of these uh, or these lobules of the liver, this deformation, the formation of nodules that will, compre will compress the sinusoids, will compress veins, will compress all of these blood vessels. Okay, don't forget the importance of the stellate cells that are the ones that become like fibroblasts producing this excess, excess connective tissue. Okay, there is a shunting of the portal vein, okay, and arterial blood into the systemic circulation due to this, leading to a decrease in all the functions of the liver. And there are two types. If you make a liver uh, a biopsy, okay, there, are, there can be two types, micronodular or macronodular, okay, nodules less than three millimeters, typically appear after a metabolic insult. Okay, one intoxication with alcohol may be enough to create these micronodules or a high dose of Tylenol, for example. And the macronodular, more than three millimeters, the nodules, this is the one that follows hepatic necrosis, and these patients are more at risk of developing cancer. There you have the changes that occur in the liver, okay, during this fibrosis. Okay, you have on the left side the normal liver, and on the right, the liver with a chronic injury. Okay, you can see there the representation of the hepatocytes Okay, you can see the Kupfer cells, okay, in these sinusoids. Okay, there you have the space of DC with these, uh, these cells here that they call uh, liposite. Okay, that is the, our uh, stellate cell, they call it here liposite. When there is a damage, okay, when there is injury to the liver, chronic injury, there is gonna be activation of these stellate cells of, or lipocytes, the ones that normally store vitamin A. They start producing collagen, as you see on the right side. Lots of collagen there. Replacement of normal low density matrix with a high density. 
many collagen fibers. Okay, and there is a loss of fenestrations in the sinusoids. Okay, there are different changes that will lead to these alterations in the liver architecture, formation of nodules. And portal hypertension as one of uh, one of the most evident manifestations. Okay, when there is a change, when there is an increase in the portal pressure, and this cirrhosis that we mentioned, okay, that will produce dilation of all the venous plexuses that normally drain in the portal vein, specifically in what we call the splanchnic circulation veins, the inferior, superior, mesenteric vein. Now, what else happens when, the, when we have this increased portal pressure? Our body okay, starts producing nitric oxide, starts producing a bunch of vasodilators, more important nitric oxide, that will contribute okay, to a systemic vasodilation in the splanchnic and systemic circulation. Okay, that systemic vasodilation will produce hypotension the response of our body to hypotension is the release of catecholamines, the release of antidiuretic hormone, vasopressin. Okay, so there will be a lot of uh, uh, responses of the body trying to compensate for the hypotension because there is a low renal perfusion okay, that will also activate the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So we have epinephrine, we have aldosterone, we have antidiuretic hormone. Okay, we are gonna create a situation okay, that in some cases looks like acute kidney injury, but remember this is due to a problem in the liver. That's why we call it hepatorenal syndrome. You have it here more organized. Okay, portal hypertension leading to vasodilation they are representing here the splanchnic vasodilation. Okay, that increases the capillary pressure in the mesenteric veins. That increase in hydrostatic pressure will exceed the lymphatic return, the accumulation of fluids. So the, 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 the plasma, the fluids, extracellular fluid, will leak into the abdominal cavity, explaining the ascites. Okay, so now we have all the, uh, most of our blood accumulated in the splanchnic uh, veins. Okay, so there is not too much blood going into the arterial circulation. So we have a situation that is called arterial underfilling, because the blood is pulling in the veins, it's not going to the arteries. That activates uh, different uh, hormones, antidiuretic hormone, Okay, we have the, the low perfusion to the kidney, activating the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, vasoconstrictors, antinatriuretic factors like aldosterone. Okay, the underfilling is gonna also be felt by different pulmonary receptors, arterial receptors, activating even more this vasoconstriction. Um, Aldosterone, for example, will lead to sodium and water retention. Antidiuretic hormone will lead to impaired free water excretion. Epinephrine 
will produce renal vasoconstriction, producing the hepatorenal syndrome. Water retention will produce hyponatremia, and the retention of sodium plus water will expand the plasma volume. Okay, so we have a fluid overload situation in the body that will even contribute more to the ascites. Okay, that is a very good uh, explanation of how uh, or what explains the different phenomena when you have a patient with portal hypertension. Okay, this can be added to all of the factors that occur as a result of the lack of function in the body. If at the same time the patient has low levels of albumin, what will happen? The fluid will go to the extracellular space, interstitial tissue, producing generalized edema. Okay, at the same time, you have the ammonia going to the brain, producing hepatic encephalopathy. Okay, we have the asterixis. We have all, many factors. At the same time, bacteria leaking from the gut into the peritoneal cavity. So it's difficult to mind all these bad things happening at the same time. So we may see all these together in a patient. Okay. There you have the effects of the portal hypertension on the left side and the effects of liver cell failure on the right side. Notice the esophageal varices leading to hematemesis, melena, gastropathy. Okay, because there are also varices in the, in the stomach. There is edema of the gastric mucosa as well may produce bleeding as well. You have splenomegaly, dilated abdominal veins, or caput medusae. Notice that the caput medusae, this is interesting. And this is, uh, I tell you this now because of a question that I saw the other day. It was a very tricky question. And they presented a patient with chronic alcoholism and hepatitis C, and the patient had palmar erythema, asterixis, uh, the patient was a smoker, drinking, everything that you may imagine, and almost everything was alcohol, liver, jaundice, asterixis, and the patient had all of these things that you see here. But the picture of the patient showed the caput medusae that were reaching almost the clavicles. All of these dilated veins, not just in the abdomen, they were up to here. What is the most likely diagnosis? And the most likely diagnosis was pancos tumor, superior vena cava syndrome. Okay, that was producing that. The dilated veins, these uh, superficial veins dilated because of liver problems, never pass above the abdomen. When you see the dilated veins in the thorax, that is likely superior vena cava syndrome. Okay? The question that tries to take you in one direction, but just that physical exam finding tells you, mm -mm, that's not the liver, that is the superior vena cava. Okay? That was a very interesting question. So there you have more dilated veins, abdominal, uh, hemorrhoids in the rectum, ascites. Then you have the liver failure, the cellular liver failure, coma. 
because of the ammonia. Fetor hepaticus, notice what interesting thing, smells like a freshly opened corpse. Spider nevi are tiny venules dilated. Gynecomastia because of the estrogen that the liver is not clearing. Jaundice because of the bilirubin. Okay, ascites. Notice that appears in both. Okay, ascites. Why ascites is in both? Because this ascites on the left is as a result of the increased hydrostatic pressure, while the ascites on the right is because of the lack of albumin, so the low oncotic pressure because of the liver failure. Loss of sexual hair, testicular atrophy because of the increased estrogen, okay, hand tremor, sterixis, flapping tremors, bleeding tendency because of the prothrombin, decreased prothrombin production, anemia, macrocytic, iron deficiency because of the blood loss, peripheral edema, again, because of the low oncotic pressure. Okay, this is a very important slide. Okay, that you can create many versions of the same question. Which of the following results from liver cellular failure? You simply choose one of these and three of these. Okay, or which results from elevated portal pressure? Well, you choose one of these as the correct and three of these as the incorrect ones. Okay. That's a very important one for you to have clear how to study this. And there you have the same in the Calgary Guides. They even place here the spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, hyponatremia, but almost is everything like I've been telling you before. Maybe more details in certain things. And that's it for today, okay? The rest for Thursday. There is no pathophysiology on Friday, okay? okay so we're gonna be meeting on Thursday, okay? You're welcome. Position of some material okay, that is like excess matrix. 
But when we have the set of the aside for that level. But like in Hartford, you would have the demo on the board. The beating demo, yeah. Or in the lounge. Yes, yes. So it's me, like you can... We normally use Edema for when there is excess water in the interstitial space. And then the other ones, we call them pleural effusion, pericardial effusion, ascites. So everybody knows what we are talking about. Okay? Because if I tell you the patient has Edema in the abdomen, you don't know if it's in the abdominal wall, or is in the uh, in the cavity. Okay. Yeah, it just when I was you Because of the low albumin? The what? The swelling will be on her body? They may have entire body edema in very severe cases. If the albumin is very low, yeah. Thank you.